Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning and welcome back. This is Brad Furlan, your Monday host on Vermont Viewpoint here at WDEV in historic Waterbury, Vermont. Waterbury's uh, true to my heart. My grandparents were here for decades. My grandfather at the state hospital is a psychiatrist. They lived right off of Randall Street, right on the hospital grounds. And I was a little kid running around and uh, had fond memories of of everything Waterbury in those days, uh, a working farm at that time for the state hospital and uh, a lot of history there. Uh, so my next guest is our good friend, Elliot Greenblatt, a monthly call with Elliot. Welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Brad. It's great to be here again. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I gave a little prompt earlier, and I'll, I'll do it again. Listeners, uh, we're going to be talking about um, fraud and and uh, all of these things that, that go on that's a billion-dollar industry. If you've got an experience with this and you want to share, we like to say there's no shame involved. It's just it's helping the next person um, not get caught in something that maybe you did or you know somebody who did. Give us a call at 802-244-1777 and join our conversation. Um, so we're coming into we we uh, my last guest we played some Chris a Christmas carol that she wrote. And uh, the most wonderful time of the year is that has that become a problem? Well, it's you know the most wonderful time of the year for most people, uh, one way or another. But it's a great time of the year for scammers. Uh, these folks know how to read the calendar, and they know what's coming up, uh, and they time the scams in order to get highest impact. So typically this time of year, we're seeing, uh, well, with the Israeli-Palestinian situation, we're seeing human tragedies. We've got natural disasters, earthquakes, uh, tropical storms, and it just kind of all merges on us at the same time. And we also see charity pleas. We see uh, every charity imaginable trying to raise money because they know that this is the time of year people are in a giving mood. And if that isn't enough, uh, we're starting to build a little anxiety because have we done everything we need to do for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for New Year's, for Kwanzaa, for Hanukkah? It all kind of barrels down on us at the same time. And so there, the scammers are knowing then what I'm hearing is it's, it, we're emotionally charged and we're vulnerable, uh, if, if they're good sales people, which they are. They're, they're really clever at this. You know, they're, they're really good at this and they take their clues from the traditional marketing people. Uh, if you watch the ads on TV for holiday shopping, these folks know exactly what's going on with uh, their students of psychology. And as you said, the emotion is what kicks in. Emotion on things like, well, am I going to be able to buy that gift that I know I want? Uh, 
scarcity kicks in, urgency. We've got to act right now or else we're not going to get that thing that we want. And then the other thing that happens is we get kind of nailed at times by the idea of something being too good to be true. And even though we have that gut feeling, we still end up biting on that deal because it's phenomenal. You know, right now, what one of the items that we see that are, that's getting a lot of uh, playtime is something called the stop watt or the Elon watt or the watt saver. And if you've seen the ads for these, and they're typically on email, they're, they're ads that are claiming that you can save 90% of your electric bill. Now, Nobody in Vermont would, you know, give up a chance to be able to do that. But let's give it a, a couple seconds of thought. Ninety uh, percent of your bill—is that, you know, even plausible? So uh, I think you know, we've we've got to open up our eyes to what's happening and be able to dig through that uh, that snowballing effect that tends to happen this time of year. So the old saying, if it's too good to be true, then you got to be alert. Oh, you know, we see these ads for dramatic discounts, and uh, quite often they appear on social media. It's something on Facebook or possibly even Front Porch or Nextdoor or Twitter, now X, uh, and it looks great. And we need to do something, so let's give it a try. And that's where we get into difficulty. There are some very clear ways that you can dig through these scams. Uh, you know, starting off with, uh, well, donations. Charities are always out there looking for some help. And uh, don't take the, the charity for face value. Do a little research. Uh, one way to do that is check online. There's a website called Charity Navigator and another one called Give.org. And both of these uh, track charities, and they tell you how good the, the charity is in terms of what it does with its money, but also whether or not its books are available to be viewed. So do that, that little bit of research. And if there's any doubt, if somebody asks you, uh, and typically they will ask you, uh, can you make that donation now? Uh, we can put that money to work today. Well, you want to ignore that, and you want to say, well, how about sending me a pledge card if you're serious about making a donation? And, of course, the, the number one thing to do is look around your own neighborhood. Look around Waterbury. Look around the other towns of Vermont. Do you have a volunteer fire department that needs a little help? Is there some group that provides a food shelf that can use some help? So avoid the, the, uh, the tearjerker TED ads and look, look at home. Look close to home. Well, you'll be very proud of me, Elliot. You, you're a good teacher. I was on Facebook this weekend, and something sparkly caught my eye, and uh, it was low price. And I looked, I took the name, and I went to my browser, and I put it in to find the legitimate website, and I couldn't find anything. Uh, so it, it definitely looked like it was a scam. Yeah, whenever you're in doubt, one thing you can do is 
go to your browser, type in the name of whatever it is, and then the word scam and see what comes up. And there are scam tracking companies out there that make their data available free of charge. So it's not that hard to do, but, you know, it's that extra step. And some people, you know, you, you want to do something quickly. Expediency seems to kick in. Got to get it out of the way now. And as a result, we don't take those little steps that make a big difference. So I assume that the fraud affects the, the, the honest retailer too, um, because people start to learn not to take a chance. Is that true? It, it does to some extent. And the best way that you can uh, deal with that and still do your shopping online so you don't have to run all over the neighborhood is when you're looking at a website, and let's say the website is Macy's, the uh, I, the URL, the address would be Macy's.com. If the name of the company is immediately followed by the dot and com, that's going to be a legitimate site. But if that site says something like uh, shop at Macy's and save.com, that's going to be a scam. Uh-huh. So what, what are some of the, um, I know they're fake websites, but what you talk sometimes about porch pirates and deliveries and, and all that. How does that fit into the scam world? Well, in, uh, you know, when we make that order, and the, the criminals out there know that people are doing a lot of online ordering, which means great business for Amazon and UPS and FedEx. What happens is they send out fake emails, and the email says, we have a package we can't deliver. Please contact us. Here's the number or here's a place to click. And then what it will say is, you have a package that can't be delivered. There's an extra fee on it. Uh, pay now. And so we want to get that package, and they don't have any other identification other than saying there is a package. Mm. And once you work your way through that one, the other thing that we have to be aware of is something called a porch pirate. And these are uh, folks who drive around following UPS and FedEx trucks, and when they drop off uh, a package at somebody's home, the porch pirate looks around, makes sure there's nobody watching, uh, may go around the block a couple times, and then go up to the porch, steal that package. So the, then there are things that you can do to protect yourself. One of them, very simply, is buy a locking box that you can put on your steps or arrange for an alternate delivery site where you know somebody could accept the package for you. That's one way to deter the, the porch pirates in the world. Yeah, <clears throat> makes me wonder what a porch pirate's going to do with uh, an antibiotic for my sheep, but you never know. So we're talking with Elliot Greenblatt about um, fraud, and, and you know, one would hope that this kind of thing goes away, but it doesn't, Elliot. Um, we do this on a monthly basis, and every month you tell us about these new things that are happening. And I want to just um, go back to things you said in the beginning. Um, there, the 
people who are doing this, obviously they, it's all about money. There's no conscience around because they're promoting tragedies to, to, uh, appeal to your heart. Is that part of this? Yeah, I think that's an important part because, you know, when you get that call from a charity and there's the emotional pitch to the call and you feel, okay, I'll donate whatever amount. It could be $20. It could be $500. You're expecting the money to go out and do some good. And so two people are being hurt. You're being hurt because you're being, your money's being stolen. And the person who is actually suffering a tragedy is also going to be hurt because once you've been scammed, the likelihood of you, you know, being able to say, yeah, I'll donate again diminishes dramatically. Mm. So it's, it's a, it's a, a big hurt thing. And, you know, the other thing we have to be very much aware of is that, uh, whether it's a, a criminal situation or just a very aggressive marketing, uh, beware of anything that's being promoted with celebrities or uh, well-known names. Uh, you know, I use the example of this uh, energy-saving device uh, called the Elon Watt or Watt Saver, and virtually all of these push the idea that this is another great invention by Elon Musk. Uh, doing a little research, Reuters went through to actually see if this was something that would work. And the first thing they found out is that Elon Musk did not create an item like this. So they're using Musk's name as a way to gain entry. They're attaching the statements that he's made that have nothing to do with the device. And the result is people walk away saying, well, it's Elon Musk says this works, and look what he did with SpaceX and Tesla. It's got to be a great item. Wow. So if I um, fall uh, prey to this and I give them my debit card from my bank and um, $100 comes out of my, my account – does the bank have any coverage on that, or is that just because I was stupid and I lose the money? Banks are starting to show a little more uh, sympathy with people who have lost money. But our number one recommendation as far as when you're spending money online or even in a store, bricks and mortar, don't use a debit card. Don't use don't use a card that immediately withdraws money from an account. Use a credit card. It's much safer. You have a chance to challenge the charge. Uh, if there's any doubt, you can report it to the credit card company. They'll put a hold on you having to pay. So it's a, it's a much better way to make payment than to give somebody basically access to your bank account. Although I pity the uh, scammer who takes my debit card and tries to get some some money <laughs> and uh, gets declined fairly quickly. So uh, I have some safeguards, actually, Elliot, that people uh, maybe can relate to. <laughs> but that those are those are the things that you know we we tend to act on emotion. We tend to act on impulse and. 
especially when when certain issues come in, scarcity, that idea that, boy, if I don't act now, by the time I do act, the product isn't going to be available. That's a a classic technique that legitimate marketing uses, but it's also something that scammers take advantage of. That urgency issue, you've got to do it now. So you immediately react. Yeah, I, I also appreciate what you said at the start, which is that if you are a victim of a criminal, there is no shame to saying, I'm a victim. If you were beaten up by somebody, you would certainly say something. You would report it to the police. Well, this is being beaten up and being beaten up in a in a private way that other people don't hear of. Plus, the, the victim's approach typically is that they don't want to talk about it. And there's a certain amount of shame, but it's also what we say as the public to that person who's become a victim. Now, somebody gets uh, you know, robbed at gunpoint, we're going to have a lot of sympathy for them. Somebody gets robbed at uh, the computer, our attitude is, gosh, my nine-year-old nephew could have figured that one out. Mm. And then that just shuts the person down. They they are not going to jump in and say, well, here's what happened to me. I can help you so that you won't end up being a victim in the same way. Our language, you, know, you fell for that. Yeah, is also you know that that's a shaming statement, and we don't want to shame a victim because it's not their fault. We're dealing with really intelligent people who are very capable of manipulating you to do exactly what they want. Well, it actually does speak to their character, especially if they're doing donation to charity, that they're really trying to do the best they can and. Um, so it's a shout out for empathy here, folks. That's what I'm hearing. Um, so what if you get scammed? What, what, where do you report? What do you do, Elliot? Well, the, the first step, if you have actually been scammed, the first thing to do is file a police report. Now, the reason why is that means you're taking this seriously and When other agencies get involved, one of the first things that the Federal Trade Commission will will ask or that the Vermont Attorney General's office will ask is, did you file a police report? And if you didn't, you're you're kind of uh, out there hanging a bit. So that's the first step. The other thing to do is contact, in, in Vermont, contact the Attorney General's office. Uh, there's a program called the Compute, the Consumer Assistance Program, CAP, and it's geared to assisting uh, you and me if we're involved in a, a legal situation or in a crime. And this is where you can get a lot of assistance. It's a, it's a simple one. It's A-G-O dot C-A-P at vermontspelledout.gov. They have a, a phone number. It's an 800 number, so you don't even have to pay for the call. 649-2424. So those are the first places that I would go. Um, 
sometimes local police don't want to handle things like this. Well, it's not in our jurisdiction. You can still file the report. And if you get pushed back from the police, then contact the attorney general's office and tell them, you know, I wanted to file a, a, a complaint here, a criminal report, and they didn't want to take my information. So you need to be insistent. You have to be as dedicated to getting things resolved as the criminal is to stealing the money out of your pocket. And do we know uh, are most of these scams coming from out of state and out of country or do scams occur within Vermont um, that people are just jumping on the bad bandwagon? Well, there are some that originate in Vermont, not a great number of them. Typically, these things have an international flavor to them. They start in Eastern Europe, where the real brains of the operation tend to be. Uh, then transfers into South Asia, into call centers there. The payment operation quite often is run out of the Caribbean. And then uh, using folks, quite often illegal immigrants, who can uh, be threatened with uh, being reported to Homeland Security, they become the money mules, the people who actually pick up the money. This is multi, multi-billion. It's not just a small amount of money, and it's happening worldwide. Yeah. Um, we have about two minutes left, um, Elliot. What about, do we have to worry about, if I'm on a legitimate um uh, phone call getting assistance and get transferred to a call center. Does that uh, stay legitimate because the, the original source is legitimate or do I have to worry about that too? Most of the companies vet their uh, support systems. <coughs> Excuse me. The, uh, you're, you're reasonably safe if you follow along with a legitimate call. You call the number on the back of a credit card. From there, you're referred to somebody who handles your case. That's legitimate. It's when you take that number that's provided in an email or provided on a website that you start to run the risk of talking to the criminal. Got that. So we've been talking uh, with Elliot Greenblatt, our uh, our monthly guest, and I so appreciate everything you bring to us. Uh, we will be back uh, next month with you, Elliot, the first of the month, going into the Christmas uh, and holiday seasons, uh, and I'm sure there will be a lot to talk about there. But I really well, there will be more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us and for AARP. Uh, looking out for all of us, all ages, and uh, a lot of fraud out there, and we appreciate everything you do. Thank you. You're quite welcome. Thank you. It's Brad Ferlin, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV. We'll be back with Sheriff John Grismore after this. Good morning and welcome back. This is Brad Furlan, your Monday host here at Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV in historic Waterbury, Vermont. Thank you, listeners. Uh, hope your Monday's starting out well for you. And uh, we can't do radio without you, so we really appreciate you tuning in. If it's in your car, your home, your living room, or out in the yard doing those 
football chores that um, we put off and are are just sitting there waiting for us. So uh, we appreciate you. Uh, my producer is Pete Cormier. Uh, I really appreciate everything Pete does to help make this show go smoothly. My next guest is uh, Sheriff John Grismore, Franklin County Sheriff. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Brad. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, glad to have you here. Um, want to talk a little bit um, to begin with just about, you know, we when we're driving on the road, we see sheriff cars with Lamoille County, with Franklin County, Chittenden County. Um, every county has a sheriff and, and a sheriff department. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. And and what is the general role of of the of the sheriff? I know there are a lot of roles, but what what are the primary things that the sheriff and the sheriff department uh, have? Yeah, there's there's three main areas that I think that we all share, and one is and not in any order of um, you know priority or preference. One is civil process. So one of the things that sheriffs are charged with is serving civil process. So if somebody's delinquent on a bank loan or if there's an eviction process that takes place, that we have civil servers that would go around and provide that legal service on behalf of plaintiffs, behalf of of lawyers and things like that. So that's one of the things that we all share. The other thing is that we're responsible for prisoner transport. So from a closed facility like a correctional center to court and then from court to the correctional center. So those are responsibilities that sheriffs all share. And then um, the other thing is court security. So if you go to any of the courthouses, um, you'll see members of the of the presiding county that provide security services at those courthouses. So those are the three things that we all share. Many of departments like mine have expanded and have taken on town contracts to provide policing services. So that's something that, that we've done, and we have a, a relatively large unit that does the patrol services for different you know, communities within Franklin County. And um, we've also provided school resource officers. So those are two things that are not necessarily typical of all sheriff's departments. And I certainly don't know enough about the workings of all of the, you know, the other 13 sheriff organizations. But um, those are the kinds of things that, that we do as, as a common, um, kind of a common theme. And then um, what about, uh, obviously, we know uh, road traffic safety because yeah. there there are, uh, stops for that. And also, what about the drug enforcement world? Is that part of the role? Yeah, it is for us. So yes, a lot of agencies will do traffic control. Um, so that's a requirement for certain um, roadway activities from a safety perspective. So having blue lights to slow traffic down and, and manage traffic around construction areas, that's something we do. Included with certain wide load escorts, the state of Vermont um, requires that certain size and certain weight limits um, Escorts require blue lights as well to move safely from A to B. Um, but yeah, in the drug world, so one of the things that um, that my office does, and I think is relatively unique to sheriff's organizations, that we have an embedded task force member that's, that uh, we partner with the Vermont Drug Task Force. So that's really a multi-agency function that is managed by the Vermont State Police that really has a primary focus on uh, drug interdiction activities. And it's rampant now, right? Um, it is. Yep, it really is. It's it's uh, it's keeps us very busy. And what what's sort of the process? Um, people, you know, we know that it's there's this world of of 
um, buying and selling drugs out there in rural Vermont's really been hit. Um, what what can people do or can they do anything to, to help law enforcement with that? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we really encourage is to get back to this community ownership ideal that in the, you know, late 2010s, we started to see a, a separation from that community ownership where folks were generally like, you know, call the police, it's their problem. And they didn't want to take ownership. And a lot of reasons for that, of course, fear of repercussions, retaliation. Um, so we, we've started to try to change that that modality. And we've had a lot of success with that in Richford, as an example, um, through some really strong community policing efforts. But really having the ability and the courage for citizens to provide that information into us. All of that information is important, and and we, we have on some great leads from citizens that have produced results. And, and one of the challenges that we have, that all law enforcement agencies have, is that it takes a while to develop a, a drug case. It just does. Hundreds of hours go into these. It's not like you can do one controlled buy, and that's good enough. You know, we... we the way that it works, that we're required to do multiple buys. There needs to be a very, very strong case to move forward with drug charges in the state of Vermont. So that's something that that is very time, um, you know, very time dependent and requires just a lot of a, a lot of hours to produce. So, uh, but back to the community thing, that's something that people can do. Really take the ownership of your community. You know, we can't do it alone. There's less and less of us as time goes on. You know, this is a challenging profession to attract people to for a million reasons and. We could spend uh, hours talking about all of those, you know, variables that go into that. But, um, you know, we really require and depend on citizen involvement in helping us more than we ever have. And, um, you know, that I would still encourage that. I think that, you know, as a whole, we – I don't think – I know that we really need to invest in treatment programs. We have some fabulous programs in Franklin County, uh, Turning Point, one of them that I think as, as a state, we need to really allocate resources to resolve this problem. We need to, we need to stop this revolving door of addiction. Um, arresting people isn't enough. It, it doesn't solve the problem. You know, we, we see that time and time again. And, and in my opinion, we really need to focus on a collective community-oriented approach to dealing with this issue. It affects all of us. Um, you know, many, many people have, have family members that have been, you know, that have been addicted and have, have witnessed and participated in the horrible things that happen to uh, somebody that's addicted to drugs and, and alcohol. And um, we see that in the, the increasing number of thefts. Uh, people need to fund these addictions and they resort to petty crimes. So there's, you know, it really is it's something that affects all of us. And until we can unify and take a collective stand and address the addiction side of things, we're going to continue to do the same thing. It's just going to be a revolving door of arrests, and and we're not serving the community that way. So, you know, it's a big issue, obviously, or it would have been solved already. But, you know, I think that we're, we're finally embarking on the opportunity to address this collectively and really leverage these programs like Turning Point and the great work that they're doing there to make a difference. We've got to stop the addiction. So I'm I'm hearing um, t two things here. One is that there is the need I suspect to arrest, but there's also it you you've really evolved into more of an empathy for the person doing this. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, so, and the reality of this is too, Brad, is that it's not Vermonters that are bringing heroin into Vermont. You know, 99% of the drug trade, you know, the most addictive drugs, heroin, fentanyl, methamphetamine, crack cocaine, those are being brought in by out-of-staters. So the, the model is, is that these folks would come up, they would identify um, what I would consider victims. Um, they would identify addicts. They would trade drugs for room and board. And then these people from out of state would come into our communities and peddle drugs out of these houses that they have, you know, exchanged drugs for room and board. And it makes it very complex for us. But it's, again, it's, it's they're bringing this, this cancer into our communities. It's not like the old days where people would grow marijuana and, and you know, trade that illicitly. This is stuff that comes, you know, it's not made in Vermont, right? So it's coming up from Massachusetts and New York City and Philadelphia. And they're coming in and they're bringing this, this horrible drug culture into areas that are already victimized, already impoverished, already still recovering from the impacts of COVID and unemployment and, and low socioeconomic status. And, and they're preying on these, on, on Vermonters. And that's really what's happening. So two things we need to do. We need to be incredibly aggressive with these people that are bringing this cancer to our communities. We need to hold these people accountable. They need to go to jail. They need to be discouraged from coming to Vermont to peddle their drugs. Then in tandem, we need to address the addiction, the addiction of the folks, that, the citizens, the Vermonters that are addicted to these drugs and, and, and helping them to find better ways of not only addressing addiction, but also finding reasonable means for livelihood. So you talked about the, the neighbor watch concept, which really does seem to have merit. What would people be looking for? I, I'm, I'm thinking the obvious that a whole bunch of cars show up at a rental house day and night in Correct. and out. Is, is that kind of the, but that could be just a social house too. So how do you differentiate? So out of state plates. Okay. You know, the great, the great thing about Vermont and, and certainly in Franklin County is that everybody knows everybody. So people that you don't recognize. You know, I mean, that we, we have that small town feel so we can use that to our advantage. And people that you don't recognize always can, can call us and let us know. If it doesn't, you know, it's like the, the, the sniff test, right? If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. So communicate that. So out-of-state cars, multiple transactions, and quick transactions. You know, uh, coming into the holidays, we all know what it's like to see driveways full of cars. Well, they stay for a while, Right. So drug transactions happen very quickly. Somebody pulls in, they stay for five or ten minutes, and they leave again. So high frequency, high turnover of vehicular traffic, high, high frequency, high turnover of pedestrian traffic, and again, people that are not, um, you know, not known to be Vermonters, un, you know, unrecognizable people. We're talking this morning with uh, Sheriff John Gilmore. Uh, John Gilmore. He was my guest that um, unfortunately didn't make the first. I've got Gilmore and Grismore. So, uh, we're talking with Sheriff John Grismore, uh, Franklin County Sheriff. Uh, the the public really does have a, a role here. Sheriff, I want to uh, dig a little deeper into something you said. Um, you have what would be considered it, the sniff test um, has a house, has dealing going on, and uh, you, ha you start a process to try to uncover, uh, uncover this and, and maybe actually you know, pick somebody up and, and try to stop the action. But you said it's, it's a rigorous process. Can, can you tell us more about that and why that is? 
Yeah, absolutely. It, it just takes a long time to cultivate leads. So um, a lot of times when we are investigating drug crimes, we have to get a way of proving the difference between use and distribution. So we're, we're looking at the people that are, you know, the distributors of it, especially at the Vermont Drug Task Force level, right? So it's the bigger fish idea. So th th that, that just takes a lot of time. So developing leads, developing and, and cultivating informants, getting controlled buys in is a, is a big process. Um, so it, it, just, it, it just takes a lot of time. And, and, you know, dealing with informants is a challenge. Um, you know, they're, they're, it's just a challenge. I don't want to get into a whole lot yeah. of details because I don't want to, I don't want to divulge any of the trade secrets that we have and, and how that's done. But it, it just takes a while. And, and really it's, you know, those resources are spread incredibly thin and we need to, agencies like mine need to make the investment in these, you know, amazing programs that are doing this really, really tough work. So it used to be in the day when, when agencies had better resources that we could devote a person or two to these task force. But um, we unfortunately, and I say we really all of law enforcement in the state of Vermont really is depleted. So having the ability to do that is, is a challenge. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that we can all do is really, and it's something that I'm, I'm preparing to do with all the towns that we provide services for is that, you know, we really need to allocate funding and, and support for these programs. And I got some, a little bit of negative criticism with some staffing shortages that I had and, you know, my unwillingness to pull my guy from the task force and put him on the road to fill, uh, you know, a contract slot because I believe that the work that he's doing and his team is doing is so unbelievably beneficial to the, to the bigger plan than, you know, responding to calls in a town, for example. I mean, that stuff is incredibly important too, but it's, it's bigger bang for the buck ideology that we're trying to allocate those resources. So, you know, communities need to recognize that as a need and need to fund that. And, and so that's some of the things that, that we're really dedicating resources to in Franklin County and, and working with all of our state and federal partners to address these issues. And we've had a couple of search warrants lately that we've really leveraged those part, those partnerships with, you know, the state police and St. Albans police and Swanton and, you know, the Homeland Security Investigations and the DEA and, and the ATF. So as, as an example, so those are the things that we really need to do. And, and that's one of the great things about Franklin County is that we're really collaborative. You know, it's we all the leaders, all the law enforcement leadership in this county recognizes that we're on the same team. We all have the same missions and the same challenges and, and really work closely to make sure that we address these things more holistically and, and don't let just because of our color of our uniform, we don't allow ourselves to, to get compartmentalized and, and neglect the ability to really interact effectively. And, and we've seen that, you know, we, we get great support from all of those agencies and, and we really depend on that. So so you've been in law enforcement um, for a long time. It's been a career and you became sheriff. Uh, we talked on a prior show that there were some challenges obviously going in um, for you and still are, uh, but with that, you you still are the head of the department, and and you're building um, your building. So, can you talk a little bit about the process for that? What what are you doing that's uh, that's helping the the people of Franklin County? Yeah, so we're looking at just expanding the way that the services are provided. So, looking at more robust and more effective ways to um, to really stretch the thin dollars that we have. So 
One of those is really embracing the community-oriented policing services model and, and getting back in the community. As a matter of fact, we, we recognized one of our own with a, with a brand-new award to recognize all the great things that he's done in the community of Richford, um, and that being Deputy Andre LeBeer. So, and he's, he's a career law enforcement person that retired at the federal level and then came to work for the sheriff's office as has been the school resource officer in Richford. Uh, formerly was in Fairfax and then moved to Richford and, and has just done some amazing things there to really embrace that community at, at all levels and build really powerful relationships with all the members of that community. So we're really looking at, at bottling that and seeing how we can leverage the great things that he's done to the other community that we have. So we're kind of on the cusp of that. You know, he's he's very humble and he'll not like that I'm talking about him on, on the radio, but um, you know, that the reality of it is, is, is really leveraging the great skill sets we have. And he's one of them. You know, all of our people have incredible things and, con- and incredible skill sets and contributions to make. So we're really trying to be effective in identifying those abilities and, for lack of a better term, exploiting them for the greater good. So that's, that's some of the things that we're doing. But we're, we're looking at expanding, you know, so there's been a lot of discussion recently about us moving from the St. Albans Town contract, and that's a great opportunity for us to get into these towns. You know, one of the things that was very important to me and was to reestablish partnerships with communities that had been neglected before. So getting back into Richford more consistently and Enosburg and Sheldon and Franklin. Sheldon and Franklin are contracts that we've reestablished that didn't exist before. So, you know, they came to us looking for some additional resources um, since I was elected and were able to fill those needs and just really spreading ourselves more uniformly around the county. And um, and it meant cutting, you know, some areas, but it meant that we needed to, to be more effective and more universal across all the county. And we're looking to expand. And, you know, we recognize that a lot of the towns that we have need dedicated police services. Again, like I said before, we're all stretched very thin. Resources aren't what they used to be. So we need to be, you know, really efficient in how we provide those services. So uh, crisis response team, there's definitely a lot of uh, mental health issues. We talked to Chief Murad uh, from Burlington and Mayor Moreau uh, Weinberger about, you know, really the there's so much more socially going on out there. Are, are, is this something that you're addressing as well? It absolutely is, and that's exactly what the essence of the crisis response team is, is that, you know, we've seen the great success that St. Albans Police Department has had with their invented mental health worker. Um, we've seen the great success that the Vermont State Police has had with their embedded mental health worker. Um, we, we have recognized that that's an expense to a community, um, and it's also, uh, you know, something that we could – leverage the experience that they've had. They've kind of paved that path for us, and we can use that in a kind of a more uh, a different way of applying those resources. So the, the model that we have chosen here, and it's something that I put in place before I was elected, back when I was the, the captain here, was to really, and there's three, there's three areas. Um, is one is to really identify a specific skill set and a specific ability with training and expertise that has the ability to respond much like an embedded mental health worker would be able to. So increased skills in de-escalation, in crisis negotiation, crisis response, mental health awareness and response, even up to negotiating, you know, so like hostage negotiation tactics and skills, which we've deployed and had a lot of success with in Franklin County um, recently. So 
Um, really creating that team so that we, instead of having like maybe one embedded worker, we now have four or five or six people that have a, not, not the same, but a very similar or a, a near similar skill set that can respond you know, more around the clock and, and, and be kind of a, a more broad approach to this. So I always, I always think of it as like the difference between a nurse practitioner and a doctor. So when you go to the doctor's office, a nurse practitioner might be the person that you see all the time, and they can do most of what, you, what your needs are from a medical perspective, and it's the doctors that would do more of that acute, specialized needs. So that's the way we look at it, is that we can get them all the way to the point where they might need to see the doctor, and then we would defer and, re- and bring them over to those experts, those crisis uh, intervention experts, those mental health experts. So that's one of the things that we've really done, and we're, it kind of, when I left the organization, it went dormant and kind of fell apart, and since coming back, I've, you know, we've put a lot of effort into reestablishing that. So we've just sent two people to uh, Team 2 training, and that is a multidisciplinary training that leverages a lot of other resources beyond law enforcement um, to address mental health needs in the community. So just one of the things that we've done. The other thing that we're, we're working on, continually working on, is improving mental health awareness and crisis response skill sets for all of our people. For example, courts, right? So when people go to court, they're not having a good day, right? They're there for some, you know, filing for divorce or they've got criminal charges or family challenges or whatever. So they're already coming in with a heightened level of anxiety and stress. So we want to make sure that our people recognize that effectively and can respond to their needs appropriately with empathy, with sympathy. Um, and so we're looking at that. And then the third thing that we're doing is really making sure that we're keeping a good finger on the pulse of our own mental health needs and recognizing that you know people in this profession are under a tremendous amount of stress and making sure that we're putting plans in place um, and that would even include um, expanding it to the family. You know, we recognize that the impact that it has on the family, you know, I mean, we all have loved ones that are terrified that we are going to work every day. And that doesn't exist in most professions. You know, I don't think that we're terrified that, you know, one of our people, one of our loved ones is going to go to get work and could be involved in something awful. So there's a tremendous amount of stress that, that is put on the family system. So we want to make sure that we recognize that. And we put systems in place to, to mitigate that and, and provide the appropriate amount of support for folks. So that's just the way that we're looking at it. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of agencies are looking at this stuff and have great programs in place to do the same thing. We've been talking with uh, Sheriff John Grismore, Franklin County. We've got about 10 seconds left. I want to thank you for being on the show and updating us on uh, important law enforcement issues. And we appreciate what you do. Great. Thanks so much, Brad. This is Brad Furland, Vermont Viewpoint, uh, WDEV, Historic Waterbury, Vermont. I hope you have a great day. Be back next Monday.